the Podfix Network. Hello and welcome to this very special filmmaker's podcast, The Making of David Fincher's Mank. It's Orson Welles. Of course it is. I think it's time we talk. What is it the writer says? Tell the story you know. This is a podcast where we talk... Filmmaking. From indie film to... Studio movies. And everything... Uh, All other things. In between. Uh, (laughs) Welcome everyone. If it's your first time listening, thank you for joining us. We talk about making movies. And we are delighted today to be talking about the making of... Mank. I'm Giles Alderson. I'm a writer, director, and a producer. And my co-host today is just a DP called Andrew Roger. Just a DP. But actually, you're also in a band, and you're singing vocals. I say singing very lightly. Whoa. Vocals. <laughs> Vocalizing. Are... Vocalizing. Oh, and I run a watch brand as well. You know. You do run a watch brand called. Uh, come on, let's plug it. You say it. You say it. You're better at it. Planner watches. Nice. See, it's good, right? Very nice. Also joining us as a co-host is the wonderful Phil Hawkins. So look out for him. Um, This today, I'm delighted because we have on the filmmakers who created Mank with David Fincher. We have the incredible cinematographer, Eric Messerschmitt. He has worked with David Fincher. He was a gaffer on Gone Girl, and then he went on to shoot Fargo. And he shot over t- 10 episodes, at least, of Mindhunter, which David Fincher was the exec producer on. And Mank is his debut movie, his feature film debut. And it's nominated, Mank is nominated for 10 Oscars and 6 BAFTAs. I mean, what a star. How was your first film, Andy? <laughs> uh, obviously, I won less BAFTAs. But... You have won less BAFTAs. <laughs> well, he hasn't, done these, he hasn't won any yet, mate. He hasn't oh, won any. Oh, oh, we won the same amount of BAFTAs, so there's that. There is that. Zero so far. But I imagine Mank will win uh, plenty of BAFTAs. So. If you haven't watched Mank yet, it's on Netflix, and it is. I, I really enjoyed this. It's a beautiful movie. Not only have we got Eric Messerschmitt on, but we have production designer Donald Graham Burt on as well. Now, Donald is a production designer of The Curious Case of Benjamin Button, The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, Gone Girl, The Social Network, Zodiac. I mean, House of Cards he did as well. This is incredible. Incredible insight into what it's like to production manage and work on the art department in movies, but especially on David Fincher's Mank and how they got the look. But that is not all, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls. It is not. Uh, who else do we have, Andy? Trish Somerville, who was a costume designer on Mank, and many other huge productions, such as... The Hunger Games, Catching Fire, The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, Red Sparrow, um, The Dark Tower, L- L- Justin Timberlake for featuring Jay-Z, Suit and Tie music video. The list goes on! But, ladies and gentlemen, that is still not all. Who else do we have, Andrew? We also have Gigi Williams, uh, who was makeup on this movie. And also uh, Leon, the professional in America, the professional. 
That's good knowledge, knowing that that's called that in America, but not that here. That was good knowledge, but Manx. just made me laugh the way you said it. <laughs> uh, Gigi Williams is the maker department on Mank. Uh, she's also done many fantastic movies, such as The Spy Who Dumped Me, Mascots, Triple Nine, um, Inherent Vice, Argo. Oh, go fuck yourself. What a movie that is. No, <laughs> you can say that. Um, it is a delight to have all four of them on our podcast, the Filmmakers Podcast, just for you. You are in for a treat. Uh, Andy, what did you learn um, from Eric? Because obviously being the DP in the room, more so than me, what will that audience learn? It's really nice to talk to DPs because obviously I don't get to work with DPs in my day-to-day life there's one dp on set same as a director um actually there's more than one director on set that's a whole other conversation yeah but um, but actually but yeah. right most of the time there's just usually one yeah. dp and one director so, so you, yeah. you to, to to listen to someone else's process is really valuable i think it's a, a real delight that we've got these people on the podcast so thank you uh to maureen and all the team at organic publicity for doing this it's really cool and if you haven't seen mank like i said go watch it uh you'll you'll understand even more about what the, the lovely team uh production team are saying because we we do talk about how to create the look sound feel and homage to the golden age of movies uh, that Mank is depicting. It's a kind of movie you kind of want to watch alongside Citizen Kane or re-watch Citizen Kane again after you've watched it. So Andy, let's get started, shall we, on this fantastic uh, Mank, the making of David Fincher's Mank special. Who should we start with? Shall we start with... Who should we start with? It could be Eric, right? Eric Messerschmitt. I think, why not? Let's start with cinematographer Eric Messerschmitt. Enjoy. Hey, Eric, how are you doing? Good, how are you? Good, thank you. No problem. This is great. So let's jump straight in. Wow, incredible, you know, the fact that you did Mank together and the fact that you made Mank and made it look so beautiful and it was your debut feature film. is insane, really, isn't it? You know, and the film's been Oscar nominated and BAFTA nominated. And that must feel, first of all, that must feel incredible, right? It, it does. Yeah, it feels amazing. I mean, it's... uh it's a it's a bit overwhelming to be honest you know um but i'm thrilled and and uh certainly appreciate the recognition it's uh it's uh it feels really good and everybody worked really hard on the movie so you know we're certainly proud of it yeah well you should be so this is andrew roger he's a cinematographer as well hi eric hey, how, man, you doing, how are you I'm good man I'm good to see you so yeah look i mean we've got so many questions and so little time so let's um let's start off i think what's fascinating for us is the fact that you went from gaffer into sort of working on all sorts of uh, projects through the ranks, if you like, to DP, you know, working on some amazing projects, including Mindhunter, Fargo, and you even worked with Fincher before, but then moving into DP. Do you want to just talk about that that role quickly and how you, you do sort of go up the ranks somehow and some people can? You know, there's there's so many different ways you can work your way up and so many different ways to become a cinematographer. And I, I went to film school and I... Um, I came out of film school thinking I was a cinematographer, you know, I was like, Oh, you know, I've landed, I'm a DP, here I go. And, Mm. um, you know, thinking it was all about just getting as if, if I just had the equipment, I could do great work. And I was very naive, you know, and I I moved to Los Angeles and immediately realized that, that, uh, that was naive and that there's tremendous skill to be, um, uh, 
to be learned. And um, I, I kind of decided that I, I wanted to be a cinematographer badly, uh, yeah. but that I just, I needed to spend time watching people work. I really wanted, I, you know, I was like, I can't just rely on my taste. I need to learn the skills. And I was fortunate to watch some amazing cinematographers work and help them make their work, you know, especially when I was working as a gaffer. Um, and for me, that was incredibly important because I really feel like I, I had the opportunity to watch people succeed and also fail, you know, um, and learn from, learn from those situations and, and see how they react to those situations and how they manage the crew and how they work with the director and how they develop ideas. And, um, so, you know, I think when it, when it came time for, for me to move up or when those opportunities presented themselves, um, I, I, I felt like I was ready in a way, I guess, you know, not to suggest that I'm not learning something new every day because we sure, I sure am. But, um, uh, but I, 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 I was, I felt very excited to do it. And I felt like it was a time in my life where it, it seemed like a, a step to take. Yeah. Does that make sense? Very much so. Yeah. yeah, totally. I think going, I think going from any sort of route in this filmmaking journey that we do from anything, if it's production assistant, you know, you want to be a director one day, I think the more you can be on set and learn and watch other people, the better you'll be. I mean, that's so important. Yeah. You, you, you were, you were gaffer on Gone Girl as well. You must've learned so much watching David Fincher at that point as well to know how he works as a director with the for cinematographer sure. for sure i mean you know i kind of think of it like um like an orchestral conductor in a way you know you could be a complete novice and you can go up and you can wave your hands and pretend to be an orchestral conductor and the orchestra will play <laughs> yeah right um uh and it's it'll probably be okay um but it probably won't be great and and that's, it's a little bit like being inexperienced and walking into a professional film set and what, you know, the, the gaffer will help you and the camera assistant will help you and the script supervisor will help you and the operator will help you make the movie and, and you can stumble your way through it as, um, but, but it takes, in my opinion, it takes time to really learn the nuances of the skill that is required, you know, and it takes time to understand how to strategize with the first AD and strategize with the production designer and the, and the line producer and, and, you know, horse trade for the equipment you need and the time you need and, and the schedule and, you know, when, when you need to fight to shoot things at the right time of day and when you can cheat it and th those sorts of things, I think, you know, that you just don't have when you just fall into the business at 22 years old, you know? Mm. <laughs> sure. So obviously you shot quite a bit of TV before this first feature. How did you find the difference? I mean, I've noticed when I, shoot a film and get way longer to set shots and light. Did you find it was different from shooting TV? Um, a bit. I mean, I, you know, I've been fortunate to work on some television that, that is, uh, a cer certainly the television I've done with David, um, where we haven't treated it much different in terms of product, you know, at least yeah, in terms yeah. of what we're trying to put on the screen. We mm -hmm. have generally had a good amount of time to work and there's been great attention to detail and expectations that we would deliver high high quality work um i th i think the biggest difference is that in television um the director's not really in charge um hmm. and 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 in many cases uh, certainly uh, a lot of the shows i've done um you know the cinematographer is is partially responsible for kind of um ho holding the tiller on the sailboat and keeping the boat going straight and sure. you know um 
and you're sort of you are a bit of a um you you're you have a slight a different responsibility in terms of managing the show uh you know and certainly it it gets further compli- you know when you're working with someone who's um uh, when you have a, a, a second cinematographer, in some cases a third cinematographer that you're sharing the, the show with, you know, it, mm-hmm. it's, um, it further complicates it. And, mm-hmm. and that can be fun, but, it, you know, it's d- entirely different on a feature film where it's just you and the director, and the director is definitely in charge. And certainly on this movie, you know, David is, uh, is, is absolutely um, the one calling the shots. So, uh, so, you know, there's very clear leadership with him. And um, so that, that's, that's the, that, was the biggest difference for me, you know, for sure. sure. Um, yeah. Well, Mank, look, obviously it, it's really big splash on Netflix when it came out and it was really interesting for me. It'd been fascinating to see in the cinema, you know, it would have been just really interesting. And I really hope we can do that one day, but still, I, I really quite like the fact that it sort of came up on Netflix and we could, while we're, well, we're all in lockdown and sit and watch this at home and, and being black and white as well. And it's sort of striking when I first saw the trailer, I was like, this is stunning and striking. And when I saw that it was your, and, and it's, it's one of those weird things to say it's your debut movie because <laughs> like all, you know, Mindhunter, every episode was a, a feature film, you know? So it's, it's really, I feel like it's harsh to say that, but that is technically what's written, but the choice sure. to shoot in black and white, did you and David, sit down early on and say, look, let's do this, you know, because the style of this film is incredible. Did you, Thank you choose to do that from like an early point, you and David, were you going through how you wanted to do this? Because certain bits would have, we know would looked incredible in colour, but then shooting in black and white, and Andy knows, is really difficult to make the colours pop in black and white, but yet you did, and it's an incredible well, job. You. What was, was that choice early on to go, we're going to shoot Mank in black and white? It was um, David had made that decision uh, long before I was on the movie. He he knew it was it was he he wanted to do it in black and white. I mean, he's been trying to make the movie for thirty years. So, uh, uh, and and I think part of the reason that he ha- has not been able to make the movie until this point is because uh, the studio wouldn't give him the money to make it in black and white that he needed uh, until Netflix came along. So, um, but but we we did um, we did talk a lot about style. And what approach to take, and you know, I, I, I kind of believe in a way that that um, whatever whatever images you end up with are have much more to do with working practice and situational kind of um, adaptation than pre visualization. In a way, mm. um, you know, I think for. I we started out. I, I sent David a bunch of images that that I thought were relevant. Um, I, th- I I said, oh black and white. Oh cool, we get to do this. We get to do all the black and white stuff. You know, I get to do all that cool black and white stuff. Tell totally. yeah. we've been wanting to do yeah. that for a long time. It's like black and white <laughs> yeah. look really cool, and then you yeah, look at right. the realities of it, and you're like, well, hang on, how do we get the costumes to come out in this certain way? The colors, you know, mm. and you've got to portray the glamour of that yeah. world as well. Yeah, it's really hard. Yeah, it's hard, and you know, and I I was concerned. I was worried that it would it would come off as a bit of a parody or that we could, you know, it could very quickly become overt homage, you know, Mm -hmm. um, Mm -hmm. and, and actually become distracting. So it was like, and I desperately wanted initially, I was like, Oh, I get to do all this high contrast noir lighting and it'll be so cool, you know? And, um, and in actuality, when I really got into the script and started to talk to David, it was like, well, this isn't really a noir film. Um, it's not really a 30s glamour film. There's opportunity for for stylistic um, expression, but but I was sort of like, hold on a minute, you know. 
Uh, so I sent anyway. I sent David a bunch of images, and mm -hmm. and it was you know sort of throughout the spectrum of black and white. And he's great. He was like, he immediately got back to me, and he said, "Okay, I like I like the contrast here. This is interesting. This uh, I I don't know about all this hard light. Do you want to do that? Or, you know, sort of like it, sometimes it could get quite quite fractal the conversations, and other times they're really abstract. You know, um, but we kind of whittled it down a bit into a somewhat of a lookbook, and it was really just a way for us to very easily assess the situation on the set and decide what direction to go in. Um, like as a, as a reflexive reaction to what was happening on the set, you know, it wasn't like, it wasn't like, okay, we're going to make this shot from citizen Kane, or we're going to make this shot from Rebecca or, you know, it was much, mm. much more about like kind of um, homogenizing our collective tastes so that, so that when we were going in one direction, we knew where we, we could communicate really quickly. Um, I think. And that's kind of the way we generally work anyway, or we have been working. Um, we don't talk very much about it. We sort of like initially have a, have an idea discussion about like, what is it we're making? Um, visual references work really well. And then it's like, okay, then we get to the set and it's like, well, I wish the light was there, but I can't hang it there because it's the ceiling won't take it. So I have to put it there. And how am I going to react to that? So, you know, it's, there's all those sorts the realities, of realities. Yeah. Yeah. Realities that you deal with as a DP. Um, you know, it's like perpetual disappointment. Um, the filmmaking is like months of hope followed by several weeks of disappointment. You know? <laughs> <laughs> it always is. It's interesting you're saying that a lot of the photography felt very modern. I guess that's, that's probably yours and Finch's style really coming through, I guess, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, I kind of feel like I had this idea that the, the, the flashback parts of the film would be slightly more stylized mm -hmm. or slightly more period mm -hmm. uh, lit. Um, and the contemporary stuff, the, you know, contemporary, the stuff in the Victorville bungalow, you know, um, could, could be slightly more modern, like almost like Manhattan, you know, or you know, kind of, oh, yeah. that kind of very soft top light. And, you know, we, we debated it, honestly, it was sort of like, well, should we go for this hard light thing? And should we, you know, should we really push it? And, and there are definitely scenes in the movie where we did, I think, but, mm -hmm. um, but I, I think so. I mean, I think uh, the movie is definitely a bit of our own, our our, just our own look, you know, and kind of what we thought looked nice and what we wanted to do. And, and we, you know, it was really trying, trying hard not to lean into, uh, 30s lighting. Sure. Yes. Know? I was going to um, say, because yeah, yeah th that's got a certain style to it all. And you're like, Andrew says is it's, it is more modern and you've got a, the taste of the audiences these days do want something different. So that must've been that challenge to go, well, look, we want to match, in some way, how Citizen Kane was kind of shot, or that world of that time, but yet you want to put your own stance and feel on it to make it feel nostalgic, and the difference between the 30s and 40s with the flashbacks is, is brilliant. Right. But yet, to let an audience who aren't used to black and white, you know, sort of bring that on board. Um, was there any kickback at all with shooting black and white, or was it totally fine, this is what we're doing, when you, were, when, you, know, you, know, you came on board? Uh no, no, not at all. They were incredibly supportive of it. Um, mm. I mean, the big discussion really was whether or not we would shoot real black and white or desaturated color. And, you know, that was, we ended up shooting uh, on the black and white camera, which was fantastic. Um, wow. But it wasn't actually initially what I thought we were going to do. We, you know, it's just we did a, a lot of testing and, um, and, and we, we ultimately decided that that's, that, that was, that was the best choice. But um, yeah, was, no, they were incredibly supportive. Yeah, and how was that for you? How challenging was it then? You know, now you're shooting on the black and white camera. You've really, you've got to think about where every sort of 
lighted, what every costume looks like. So you must have collaborated, you know, with the whole team across the board. How how was that process? Oh, it was amazing. I mean, Trish Somerville, the costume designer, and Don Burt, uh, production designer, and I, and and Jan Pascal, the set decorator. Uh, uh, we we spent a tremendous amount of time in the prep testing, uh, and we tested. Uh, costumes against certain backgrounds and makeup mm. against certain costumes and you know it's like the wrong shade of lipstick would make amanda's lips look completely black wow for example yeah. you know so we really had to kind of uh evaluate everything and um and we wanted to do as much in camera as possible i mean there's visual effects in in the in the film obviously but uh in terms of grading with the exception of like added film grain and and a little bit of gate weave, the, the dailies look very much like the movie. Um, and that was de- definitely, that's always our goal, you know. So um, uh, we, you know, we, we spent a ton of time uh, talking about it. And I mean, Don and I spent hours in his office shooting black and white iPhone pictures of tile and wallpaper and stuff, you know, and <laughs> putting different color light on it. And, yeah. uh, and then we shot the actors in, in front of all different backgrounds and all sorts of different lighting scenarios in every costume that they were in. So there are like hundreds of tests. Uh, mm. So yeah. you were prepped like within an inch of its life in some time. How long a prep time did you have? It was actually, uh, it was short, but it, it was packed full. I, I, I think mm. it was six or seven weeks. Oh, wow. Um, sure. Yeah, I was, I had a shorter, pre- I was shooting Race by Wolves in South Africa. Mm, which is um, fabulous, right by before. the way. Loved oh, it. Thank well you. done, mate. Yeah. Thank you. So I kind of, barely skirted in under the wire we you know we, we flew back my wife and i flew back from south africa on like uh you know whatever it was the 20th of august and and the next the 21st i was in david's office on the movie but i mean we had spent time prior communicating mm-hmm. via email and, and on for the phone talking about the movie but but my kind of hard prep started right there and we immediately started testing Right. Can we talk about, um, David is notorious for wanting to do many, many takes. And I suppose it'd be really interesting to get your side of that from the cinematographer's side, because sometimes it can be difficult with the actors. Sure. But for you, as a creative, it, you must have just got to improve it every time, right? I mean, how did that work? And was it an issue doing so many takes? Uh, yeah, I mean, I am I'm a convert to the church of David Fincher, for sure. Um, <laughs> you got used to it, I suppose. Yeah, I, 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 I mean, I think... For the the kind of um, uh, precision that we're going for, particularly with the operating and focus, you know, my crew now they we you know when we work with a director who does two or three takes, they think God, it could be so much better if we just did a couple more, <laughs> you know. Um, <laughs> the, it can be challenging when you're trying to match light, particularly in a day exterior, um, mm. you know, um, or, or or a day interior is even harder where you're using the natural light, and so you know a lot of the decisions we're making initially is is accounting for that reality that you know we may be in a shot for a couple hours and i can't just i i can't if it's going to change you know like you know for example like you guys know it's like you're in a you're in a interior uh you know interior like a living room like this and Mm -hmm. you have some natural light and you just need a little bit of fill and you just need two or three shots you could probably get it natural light and get it very quickly right yes um if you're going to be in the master for two or three hours uh and the sun's going to move 50 degrees and it might be cloudy, you know, it changes your approach dramatically. So, Mm. um, you know, a lot of our equipment choices and our prep and rigging choices are based around knowing that we're probably in that situation, you know, but David is, is also, uh, you know, he's a really good producer and he understands his approach better than anybody understands the impact of that approach. So, uh, 
you know, if something's going to get expensive, you know, if I need a construction crane or a fly swatter to take the sun off the side of a building and it turns into a thing, um, you know, he'll say, okay, hold on, let's, let's, when, when do we need to shoot this and how much time do I have to shoot it? And he'll make it work or we'll find another location, you know? So he's very, um, uh, he's, he's very collaborative and helpful in that way, you know, and really understands the mechanics of what someone in my position is up against. You know, I mean, David could easily shoot the movie himself if he had, if he, if he wanted to. So, um, you know, that's really nice for, for, for me, uh, when I'm working with him, because we can, we can have a, you know, uh, a really abstract theme conversation, or we can have, you know, quite a, uh, complex technical conversation about what, what, you know, what complexities we're dealing with, you know, whether it's the weather or the sun position or whatever, you know, I, I, I would say I'm much, much more interested in camera direction, uh, than I am in lighting. Like I sort of feel like, uh, you know, and, and in a way, I think that I've just sort of learned that from watching DPs I respect work. It was like when I first started in the business, I thought it was all about lighting. And it was all about like lighting the set. And I would like light, I would light the set and then figure out where I needed to put the camera. And I would get very excited about where we were going to put things and, you know, where I could hide lights and all that. And um, And it wasn't until I really kind of spent some time in the business that I realized and learned that that is completely the wrong way, or at least for me, it's like, it doesn't work at all to work that way. So I, I always set the camera first and I, I'm much more interested in how we're going to cover a scene and how we're going to develop it and what focal lengths we're going to use. And, um, and really like from an editorial standpoint, like how are we going to sequence this? Mm-hmm. Um, and then I make all those, all the lighting choices from there. So, you know, when I'm talking to the gaffer, um, I always try to lay it out in terms of where we're going to put the camera and and what our backgrounds are going to be and how much, how much flexibility I need to have, uh, in coverage. You know, if I'm going to, if I know we're going to cross the line and we're going to look into a flat, flatly lit wall, how we're going to adapt that, how much, how dogmatic I need to be to like, you know, matching, you know, respecting the source and matching the the original direction of the light, or can we cheat it for, 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 for shape, you know, Uh et cetera. Um, but I, I try not to micromanage, you know, anybody, uh, you know, I, I, but I am, I do, I do get quite specific sometimes. And, and oftentimes it's because I, I feel like, um, I, I, I'm negotiating things with myself. Um, like I, and I have been on sets where, you know, the operator gets very, you know, they get very protective of their shot and then the gaffer gets very protective of their lighting mm-hmm. and the, you know, and I, um, and I hate working that way. And I make it very clear to the people I work with that that's not how I like, I want, I'll set the frame and then I'll light the frame. And then, um, and if, and if there's a collision, um, that I will arbitrate it, you know, uh, because, and I have to, I have to make those choices all day long. You know, as a DP, you're constantly making those compromises. It's like the, you want the light lower, but you need the headroom, et cetera, you know? Um, so, um, that's part of why I'm specific because I don't want those, those sorts of interactions to happen on the set. I really want to control the, you know, does that make sense? Yeah, it makes a lot yeah. of sense. Yeah. yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Um, I know we've got to let you go, Eric. This has been lovely to chat to you. Thank you. We could talk forever. No um, finally, could you give some advice to cinematographers or uh, photographers coming up, how best to work with directors or the approach when you're first trying to get a job or pitching for something, uh, any advice there for working, you know, mainly with directors, but potentially with actors as well there. Um, 
Well, I'm still learning, uh, you know, sure, so yeah. if, if anyone has any ideas, let me know. Uh, <laughs> Good I, man. Yeah. Uh, you know, well, I think I think you got to you really have to you have to you have to work with the directors that you know you can trust um, and and respect. Um, and if, if you're not in that situation, then I would advise not working with them at all because because nothing good comes from that. You know, if you don't feel like you can help them make their film, if you feel like you have to make your film, mm. um, I think that's um, the worst possible scenario. Like, I believe firmly that the, you know, the movie lives forever, and um, you really have to fight to make the best shot, and you have to, and you have to push yourself, and, um, and you know, it's like the, the reason your, your name is on the slate is not for celebration, it's for accountability. <laughs> you know, so... So, uh, you know, that's why they put it on there. Uh, so, you know, you take responsibility for it and fight for it and push is basically, I guess it would be my advice. And, and, um, and, you know, if you shoot for the moon, you, you know, you you may miss, but at least you, at least you shot for it. Love that. Yeah. Amazing. Eric Messerschmidt, thank you so much for your time. And Mank, oh. you've done an incredible, incredible job. Honestly, it looks beautiful. Thank so well you done. so much pleasure thank you for your time yeah. buddy uh, oh you're most welcome yeah for sure all the best cheers guys thanks cheers. man cheers bye. bye bye i need a favor but you're gonna have to promise you won't laugh given the state of the world a tall order you're gonna i just know you are i have got such a hangover right now there's just a fighting chance i won't i'm being burned at the stake and i am dying for a siggy boo <laughs> <laughs> there god's punishing you so there we have it. That was the fantastic cinematographer Eric Messerschmidt. An absolute delight talking to him about his techniques and also how he worked with David Finch. And what a treat that was for you. But it hasn't finished yet. No, because we have coming up Gigi Williams, head makeup and hair designer of Mac. And we have production designer Don Burt as well as Trish Somerville, the head of costume of Mank. But before we get to those, I have another wonderful co-host to introduce to you. Now, this co-host has not only directed five features, hundreds of commercials, and the amazing Star Wars origins. It is the wonderful Phil Hawkins. Hello, buddy. Hello, mate. Oh, this is great. I'm, I'm, I'm loving a podcast that's getting into the technical side, and it's not just actors and directors, because we're all boring. But this is fascinating. <laughs> a HOD chat is great. A HOD chat. This is kind of unusual for us. We've done it before with the Arthur and Merlin special, mm. but it's really nice to dive deep, especially at the moment with them all being nominated for many Yeah, Oscar-nominated people Oscars. here. You know? Jeez. That Fincher bloke tried to join in, but we're like, no, it's not about no. directors this time. We don't want no. directors. We're done with you, Fincher. Get out of my <laughs> podcast box. What guest should we go to next, Phil Hawkins? Who do you think we should go to? I think we should get Gigi Williams in because legendary makeup and hair designer and worked with Fincher for many years. And also, I mean, look at her IMDb. It's it's insane. Um, What a bundle of lovely energy uh, she is. Oh, she's an absolute delight. Let's list off some of her credits because she is absolutely amazing. Her credits include A Gone Girl, uh, Leon, the Professional was one of her first gigs. Leon, the amazing mm, films. Amazing. Uh, Cradle to the Grave, um, The Spy Who Dumped Me, Mascots, Triple Nine, Inherent Vice, Argo, Fuck Yourself. Um, and do you know what I mean? These amazing movies. I love Argo. It's such a great film. Yeah. And she worked on Mindhunter with Fincher as well. Uh, and of course, the fantastic Mank. So, Phil, should we get to it? Let's do it. Gigi Williams, ladies and gentlemen, enjoy.
Hi, Gigi. How are you? I'm brilliant. How are you? <laughs> Do you know what? I am delighted, Gigi. Absolutely delighted because I'm talking to you. <laughs> <laughs> so thank you so much for coming on. I was actually having a chat with a brilliant makeup artist, Brody Mayhew, saying you were coming on. She's like, oh my gosh, she's one of my heroes. This is amazing. And she couldn't wait to to hear. So how fabulous. There's any goosebumps. Ah, so does it really? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> because like, interestingly, some of the other guests on this episode, you've all worked with David quite a few times. I suppose we'll start with that and how it feels to be part of that team and constantly working together. Do you learn each time? What, what kind of happens with that process from that first time you worked together to, to on Mank now? Well, I think on Gone Girl, I was uh, a bit intimidated at the very beginning and I have a tendency to be very mouthy. And <laughs> I, I realized that I really shouldn't say anything. So I think for a good month, I didn't say a word, not a word. Really? <laughs> yes. And one day, but you have to be really close to the monitor. So I'm within, you know, three mm. feet yeah. of David watching everything. And one day he turned around and he goes, what did she do to her forehead? And I'm like looking around going, you're talking to me? <laughs> well, he had been bugging this actress not to move her, her eyebrows. And it had taken her that long. And one day she came in and she did not move her eyebrows. So he was so cute. He goes... She didn't move her eyebrows. Does that mean I have to tell her she did a good job? I said, yeah, you did. Go, go, go. And ever since then, we have had constant dialogues. That's amazing. Because that is interesting. Before we get on to Mank, that Gone Girl scene, the moment with the blood and the throat, how involved were you in that? Because it is an incredible moment. And obviously, it's just wonderful. Is that, I mean, is that all your work? Is that all your handiwork? Obviously, you've got your team around you, but... Kate Disco was in on that, and it was the two of us. And we had, we, I think we took 11 takes. So 11 okay. times we had to clean it all up. Wow. And then clean it up. You know, so the mattress goes wow. out, the sheets <laughs> go out, the carpet goes out. They have to Jeez. run in, take a shower. Then we cover them completely with a barrier cream and get them all nice and pretty again, and then take them out and do it again. So interestingly for (laughs) for David, for Fincher, that 11 takes is quite small. That's a small amount, right? He likes to do his long takes. So maybe you were quite relieved. Only 11? Okay. Yes, he had prepped for 36. (laughs) Amazing. So yeah, (laughs) that moment when it was like, take 11. No, that's it. That one. That's the one. Uh, Check the gate. You must have been like. On the turnaround, I think we got it down to about. 12 minutes, 13 minutes on the turnaround, because when you work with David, everything has to be done with precision and the least amount of steps. I mean, he has once or twice said to me, she's shiny. Yeah. And I'll go to powder the person and he'll go just this side. That's all I'm seeing. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) That's amazing. Yeah, all right, fine. Just that side then. All right, yeah. Save save some makeup. You're like, but once if she turns? No, just that side. (laughs) Sometimes he'll say, I just want powder in a triangle right there. So after you work with him a while, you know exactly what he's seen and how he's seen it and what he likes. So I'll go in and powder the triangle before he has a chance to say it. And when you're working with David, you stand within two or three feet of him always at the monitor 
So you're seeing the same thing that he's seen. And as he sees something he doesn't like, he'll go, and you're already on it. Ah, so that everything in order for him to get 36 takes or 40 takes or whatever it is of everything, that means all the coverage, all the angles, you have to, you have to be on top of your game. You mm. have to do these things fast. You are not the important part of it. You're just making it look good or look the way it's supposed to look. So mostly you want the time spent rolling the camera. So that's what you get down. Brilliant. It must be really intense though, because I mean, if you say the same sentence five or six times, it starts to lose all meaning. So if you start to see the same thing over four, you know, 40 takes, the continuity of it has to be even more important, as I suppose. It's like it's very mm. it's probably very easy for things to slip. No, you know, over time. No. No, there's no there's no slip. Nope. No, no slippage, none allowed. <laughs> Part of David's 36 takes or whatever it is, is the perfection of everyone involved. So he'll say, I got to go again. And the actor is thinking, oh, what did I do? And the the uh, focus puller has a little, you know, a little softness right there. Or the dolly grip didn't quite make it fast enough to his mark. Or the chair had moved. Or yes, there was some powder missing. So everybody gets a take. <laughs> <laughs> but that can only be a good thing right because you can enhance your each time you see it and i think that's the case is certainly an independent filmmaking we kind of get two takes you know if we're lucky it's like well that we're gonna have to move on and often you see the makeup art the artist the costume going oh i just i'm sorry it was just a bit and we go i'm sorry we've got to move on so in your case you can sort of improve as well right even though obviously you want to nail it first time exactly before we go david will say is everybody ready? If not, let me know. And you get another whatever you need oh. to be ready. Right. So, which is great, which is really nice. But then there's that pressure then when you see it on the monitor and then you kind of go, oh, yes, shit, I didn't do that. Let's hope it goes again. <laughs> or, or there might be some, something you see. I don't know. You know more than me on that. But I imagine that you're so fully prepped and, and on it that, it that it must keep you on your toes immensely. Mm. But there are times like if you if you feel that something was totally wrong for you, you can go say, David, I need another one. He'll say why you tell him why. And then he'll go, OK, the dot, the focus puller can come over and say something. The dolly grip will come over and say, I can do that one better. And so he gets another take. Each person has their job and mm -hmm. each person, you know, contributes to that particular scene. Mm -hmm. So we all. It's very much a family. I mean, mm. the the focus puller, the dolly grip, the set decorator, we all cover each other's uh, backs. And if they see something, they've come up to me before and said, Gigi, there's a hair across her lip. Mm -hmm. So, you know, everybody's watching out for everybody. It's so nice to see that you say about family because it's you know like i say you've all a lot of you have worked together a lot in these these films and it's so nice you say family therefore when you're uh looking to employ people yourself and you're trying to bring people into your team is there anything specific you look for for you to do you know upcoming makeup artists or upcoming whoever it is you're sort of bringing up what is it that you specifically look for there that you know is going to fit into the team someone who's quiet <laughs> <laughs> okay well, good we're, we're good. fire giles so we'd never make it yeah that's where we're out, out mate luckily i can't i can't <laughs> do makeup 
<laughs> um, somebody who's quiet, somebody who's good at their job, somebody who um, actually likes to do 110%, who has, you know, David will set out parameters and then he's, he'll say, go and do it. Mm-hmm. So he doesn't tell you how to get from A to Z, but if, if he doesn't like, if he doesn't like Z, he'll say, you know, this over here could be better, could be different. And then he allows you to go do that. He never, he always says, I don't want to stifle your creativity, which is incredible. Yes. I love working with great makeup artists. For me, it's just makes my life easier that I don't have to go, oh, there's, there's a problem here. I, something looks wrong. It's so nice when you've already discussed those things and you come to set and someone amazing as you's gone. Yeah, yeah, we've we've talked about this. I've I've done this for you. Happy with it. It's it's such a lovely thing and so nice to hear what you're saying. What what's? It's certainly on Mank. Then was there any? Did you have any difficulties within that world because it's black and white as well? Is was there anything you had to do extra or really think about before you you got on set? Yeah, you. Ha- I had to retrain my eye completely. Right. And it's still hard to look at something in color. I'd rather see it in black and white. Really? Mm. We were in it for so long. And at yes. the beginning, we would take pictures of foundations and lipsticks and, and faces in three settings on the iPhone, three black and white settings in the iPhone. Man. I was hoping for the middle one. Right. They went okay. with the far over <laughs> noir, which was even more high <laughs> uh, <laughs> High contrast. Of course. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so high contrast, you also have to realize that you're getting some of the real bleed, the real denseness. So you have to be very light-handed, even though, you know, cadaver eyes. You, you have to be light-handed and subtle so that your makeup isn't screaming. If my makeup is the first thing you see when you look at a character... I've failed. I don't want you to see my makeup. I want you to see the character. Mm, Yes. And so we were very lucky in this. uh, DP, Eric Messerschmitt, Mm -hmm. costumes, we all on any given day would say, Eric, let's go test. And we would test for weeks. So we had a pretty good feel of the shine and the matte and the, the color and those kind of things before we went in. And we knew what filters we were going to use. And did you use any sort of prosthetics or, you know, additional things to crack faces or anything like that? Because, you know, Gary Oldman has been known for having a few ticks (laughs) in his time. So I wondered whether there's anything (laughs) there. I mean, I couldn't see anything, but like, you know, like no shape or anything to help the actor or the performance, anything like that. Gary went in saying, I'm going to shave my head back to here and we're going to do a little comb over hair piece and, you know, we'll change the nose and blah, 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 blah. And David was like, no, yeah. <laughs> I want you, the naked actor, nothing between you and the camera. So it was an exercise in something else for Gary. So I have to age him 30 years as f- and alcoholic 30 mm-hmm. years. Mm-hmm. And he tells the story in flashback. He's actually in his bed in 1940, but he's writing the script through his mm. flashbacks. In the 30s, early 30s. From 30s. Before, yeah. So what I wanted to do was make him feel and look like he was remembering his flashbacks. So I, I didn't take him as far 
groomed and polished as the people in the flashback. I always made him a little shinier, a little more weathered, a little more real, so that he would actually be his memory. So that he didn't quite fit. He was remembering the flashback. And I think that worked. I mean, I spoke to uh, the writer, Eric, no, the, one of the producers, uh, yeah. Eric Roth, at one point, and he said, I see that. And Gary saw that. Gary pr- very much appreciated that. Each time you go into a project, um, from the makeup artist perspective or makeup head, whichever role you're in, what what um, do you go in first? What do you look for? What What's the first thing you hold on to or the first thing you grab? Obviously, it's the script, so important. But then from there, when you've, you know, you've got the gig, you've, however, you know, whether that's a meeting with the director, what is the first thing after that that you go, right, how do I start? I think the costumes are the things that influence me the most at that point because okay. I want to know – and they've obviously been working a lot longer than I have on the project. So they have more dialogue with the director and they can tell me if this character is going to be, you know, fat or, or um, dressed 10 years prior in the, in the costume because they're poor or they know the quirks of the, of the character. So first I go to, to wardrobe and then right. I go to the research and then it all, I don't, I honestly don't know how I do it. I have it. It's different every time. And it's something that just comes from inside. I really don't know. I don't know how it works. Mm. I think in terms of how technology and everything's getting sharper and higher resolution and all this kind of stuff, is that making your job? She's smiling. No one can see this. Especially coming, especially Dave Fincher trying to push everything forward. Like, how is your how has your job changed like over the years? And, and obviously this feeds into the style of Mank as well, because there was a reason why women look the way they do in the movies in the kind of thirties and forties and that kind of thing, because of lighting and because of, you know, the sort of the idea of beauty and that kind of thing at the time. And that sort of feeds into Mank. But in terms of a technology question, yeah, how how has it sort of changed what you do or has it? Oh yeah, <laughs> shooting in 8K is a lot different. Yeah, <laughs> is and digital is a lot different than shooting in film because you can see everything. Mm. So you have to you have to work it. You know, you find out which, uh, especially in Mank, which foundations worked to get that powdery, dewy, powdery, smooth uh, complexion on the. 30s people you wanted everything to be smooth and and just highlighted in in uh natural ways and then of course gary was shiny so <laughs> i used and i hadn't i had i used uh tinted moisturizers on everyone everyone had to wear foundation mm. man or woman in this because we were using filters and the skin had to be tan at least one shade darker than their eyes Mm. in order to make their eyes pop. Mm. So I used tinted moisturizers on everyone and the texture on them were perfect. They kind of powdered over. They didn't look like foundation. I didn't want anyone to look like they had makeup on. And that took a while. It took a while to get there. Mm to figure that out it's interesting you talking about the, the white of the eyes because it's, it's only just clicked in my head of like what makes 
that sort of 30s kind of 40s look so captivating especially in those kind of old movie stills is the eyes you know how you're drawing your eye into the eyes so it's interesting that you so you said you said using filters in terms of like the, the, the camera filters in order to register eyes on makeup yes. yeah and then I put shadow on everyone's eyes and I lined or kind of softened underneath the eyes with a gray brown shadow as well on everyone. Because when you look at even the men in that period, they all have these smoky dreamy eyes mm. that you're like, wow. So we did that on everyone. And then we shaded wherever the light hit. Mm. So it's a whole, you know, at the beginning, David said, I don't want any eyeliner on the guys. And I was like, no guy liner. Cause I always <laughs> put something yeah. around them. He's no, so I had to figure out a different way. So I had to figure out a way that wasn't a line so that it just faded off and around because it is all about the eyes. Did you have funny challenges of like, you've tested this, you've used your iPhone, you've used different filters, you know what kind of shades work. Um, and then you get into the chair with an actor and they say, I'm not feeling it. You know, it's too much or it's too, you know, like, is there any challenges, any therapy that goes on in the chair? <laughs> with the actors? A lot of therapy. I love that. <laughs> yes. Charles, who is just a lovely, wonderful man, he was not having it from day one. He was like, Oh, Gigi, that's so much. You really want to go that far? And I was like, Yeah, it's good. It's trust me. So he kind of, okay, okay. But every day it was like, Oh, a little bit too mm -hmm. far. And then I caught him one day taking, having a, a background person take a picture of him in noir to show him. <laughs> That it wasn't too much. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I guess in the makeup trailer, you know, the lighting is very different. You know, and and oh, first yes. it's not in black and white. <laughs> and secondly, you know. Yes, that's yeah. true. You're seeing yourself in color. One day, Gary looks at me, and his wife was standing next to me, and he literally he goes, "I don't look bad enough. I'm supposed to be really hungover today. I I need to look worse." And she and I looked at each other and we went, "Oh no, God, he looks horrible." <laughs> so he looked really bad. So we took a picture and we showed him. And he was like, oh, okay, I look bad. Because his dark circles on his bags were so severe. And I painted capillaries on his nose. And he has no foundation on those in those shots. He just has four different kinds of sweats. So <laughs> wow. It's a lot of therapy to get them out there. Yes. And you get to know them yeah. so well as well. The actors, when you sat in the chair with them, you see them first thing in the morning and then throughout the day, you see them at their worst, you know, and you make them often look great. Uh, and sometimes you have to make them look worse. Ferdy, who plays uh, Thalberg, he comes in looking a bit of a mess. He's got his hair all over the place. He we usually haven't seen him in a few days. So his eyebrows are all unkempt. And he sits in the chair. He's loving it. He gets, you know, his hair really beautiful, his eyebrows plucked and shaped and and then his skin, like, he loved it. <laughs> I'd love it right now. Especially in lockdown. I'd love it too. <laughs> I felt embarrassed. I was going to, I was going to, we got to turn our cameras off for you because I thought we can't talk to you looking like this. <laughs> I know. Just going to think, where's your guy liner? <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> Honestly, amazing. Brilliant work. Uh, Gigi Williams, thank you so much. Really appreciate your time. Thank you so much. Pleasure. You're a star and this Thank has been brilliant. <laughs> Bye -bye. Take care. Bye. This is Mrs. Alexander. She types 100 perfect words a minute and takes dictation like a clairvoyant. Rita Alexander, Herman Mankiewicz. How do you do, Mr. Mankiewicz? That's a big question. 
So that was the amazing Gigi Williams. Wow. Yeah. It's such a great chat. Such a great chat. You took something really interesting. You just told me something really interesting you took from that. Well, just the fact that, you know, what unified the production of this look was something that we've all got in our, our pockets, our phones. Like they used an iPhone and the inbuilt filters to kind of unify the production to know what was the right sort of grey. It's and incredible. It's just amazing, you know, yes. to, to have that resource in your pocket. So um, that was that was fascinating. It totally was. And what's interesting is our next guest, uh, he also talks about that and that process. He is the fantastic production designer and art director, Don Burt. Wow. You know, this is a treat for you all. This really is. I'm, I'm super excited by this. Um, Oscar-nominated people on the Filmmakers Podcast here yep. with, with amazing um, insights into their process, which is just great. It's so fun to talk to them about it. Yeah, it absolutely is. I love it. Um, should we just list off a couple of uh, Donald Graham Burt to give him his full name's credits? Yeah? Do okay. It. The Curious Case of Benjamin Button, The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, Gone Girl, Outlaw King, Hostiles, um, The Social Network. Obviously, this is all Fincher. This is what's so amazing about this is these people work with Fincher over and over again. Uh, Zodiac, um, House of Cards, obviously with Fincher as well. Donny Brasco, Dangerous Minds. I mean, this guy's a legend. Yeah. And we had such a brilliant chat talking to him, didn't we? Yeah, we did. And then eclect, such an eclectic mix of film. You know, he kind of he, mm. he basically resets it every single time he does a film. So that was interesting, hearing about the kind of the process before the official thing gets going. You know, so that, that'll be interesting for people to listen to and the importance of that. The big thing I took away from this was why he thinks listening is important. Yes. Let's get to it. This is the amazing production designer, Don Burt. Enjoy. Hey, Don. Hi. Hello. How are you? Very good. Am I in the right place? You are in the right place. This is the Filmworks Podcast. (laughs) (laughs) You're here. (laughs) It's an absolute privilege to have you on. It really is. Oh, my goodness. I'm so thankful that you reached out to me it's just so gracious of you oh, to take no. an interest oh gosh yeah of course i mean your career is it it goes back you know mank is amazing and we're gonna dive into that of course and the fact yeah. that you've worked with david fincher so many times you know a curious case of benjamin button the girl with the dragon tattoo gone girl you know and and i'm sure yeah. there's many many more as well you know <laughs> we have a longer list of films we haven't made that we tried to make than we do <laughs> that's a better don't resume don't we all you should yeah. No, yeah. I, I always find that biography would be more interesting the films that like weren't made so like it'd be really interesting to read all the films you were going to work on I think that'd be fascinating <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah I keep all the scripts you know just for keepsake you know I like to have them and stack them up and look at them and go wow <laughs> yeah wow could have been you it could have been yeah it could have happened (laughs) well you've not done badly don and obviously congratulations on the nomination i'm sorry everyone's saying it but um but very well deserved so i'm kind of quiet modest guy so you know it's hard for me to take compliments sometimes (laughs) well let's talk about those uh interestingly those projects that don't get made real quick and that'll lead us really nicely into the ones that do get made you're putting in as much effort at that first initial stage right sort of in terms of all the work you're putting you know doing you know designing it the look of it you're probably doing all sorts of mood boards and reels and talk us through that process 
um, on every project, and then we'll dive in specifically to Mank. Wow, on every project. Well, I usually come on first. When I when I come on, the office is empty, and I can sit anywhere I want and work anywhere I want. Amazing, put whatever you want up on the walls. <laughs> yeah, well, it's great because I'm kind of a quiet person, actually, and I love the fact that you kind of, you go to an office and there's nobody there, just a few people, and it's quiet and you really get a chance to think, you know. Mm-hmm. And I think the most important time, for instance, on Mank, Mank came up to me first when David and I were actually doing a feasibility study on another project. And we had started that project a year before. And I remember having coffee with David across the street from his office in a little coffee shop and we were talking about it and talking about some of the challenges we had and so forth. And then at the end of the conversation, he said, you know, I have this other little project that I want to do right after this, you know, and it's black and white and it's period. And, little. Yeah. Little. And you know, it's like, I was on that other pony. I didn't really want to get off and start talking about something else. And I just kind of went, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and didn't really pay too much mind to it. And then, you know, that project postponed, and all of a sudden, Mac came to the forefront. And this was in January or February, I believe, of um, oh, what year? I can't even keep track of the years. 2019? 2019, years I believe. Ago. Yeah. Or 2020. There's, there's a fake two. year has got in the way. This COVID oh, year. We yeah, fake one. We don't, yeah. we don't count. Yeah. It. We're all a year keeping younger track than of time think. now. <laughs> yeah. This, it was pre-COVID. Let's put it that way. So um, it was, you know... He gave me the script and I read the script and of course I fell in love with it. I thought, oh my goodness, this is really something special. You know, to to live in LA as long as I have and to love this city as much as I have and to be able to have the opportunity to do a period film about not only the city, but about the industry in the city. I mean, I just was mm. like, my heart was pumping. And so, you know, I met with him in his office briefly and it really wasn't going into full production until the end of August, I believe, because of um, scheduling, actor availability, so all the other, I mean, you know, as producers and directors, the other chess pieces that come into play, you know. So here it was, you know, February. So I just kind of started to do some research on my own. And then David and I got together and did some pre-scouting and we probably spent six weeks just together, you know, driving around talking about before the actual production began. And it was such valuable time because this is a film that he actually had um, developed sometime in the nineties. I believe I can't say specifically when, but I knew it was something that had been around for a while. And, it was really in his head and I, I just wanted to spend time with him. And, and actually, you know, one of the best, um, one of the best tools you can use, I think sometimes is the tool of listening and especially with somebody that knows what their film is and David knows what his film is. And so we just spent time driving around talking, you know, I was hearing what he had to say about the film, what his thoughts were over so many years of it, what he wanted it to be, Um, We would look at locations and then we'd get into the banter of what should be on stage, what should be on location. And Mm -hmm. with that compiled with some of the research that I'd done, I'd gone to the um, Academy library on my own. Um, I'm a member of the Academy and I got access to so many documents and so many images from that period of not only the studios, but Hearst Castle and um, just so many things that were 
you know, significant in our film. And it was just a really nice time of quiet before the storm of being able to sort of collect thoughts, organize it all. And then when, you know, without coming back with all the rigors and the push and pull of people asking you for meetings and budgets and, you know, what are we doing now? And come look at this. Mm. And, you know, I'm sure, you know, <laughs> from your experience <laughs> that, um, you know, getting away from the herd of questions is sometimes a, yes. a beautiful reprieve mm. creatively. So mm -hmm. um, it was just a period of um, just sort of getting to know the film and then sort of having a, this template of what it could be um, before everybody came on and started because the prep was short and challenging. And it was important to have sort of a, a an organized sort of layout of how to proceed with it, you know, when, when we got into it. So, you know, in terms of other films, the films that haven't been made, you know, it sort of goes through the same process, you know, um, it's always, especially with David, you know, David likes to have things in order before the filming starts, he, uh, before production goes into, into play, because he doesn't want to deal with, um, and I don't mean to speak for him here, but I, my sense is he doesn't want to deal with the budget. He doesn't want to deal with how we do it, where we do it, why we do it. He wants all that sorted out and organized. And his production and his producer are very smart in setting aside time before they go into an official production and just allowing us to kind of do a discovery of it, you know, and scout some locations and do some initial designs and come up with a, uh, a plan for what we think the film should be. And of course do a budget so that we don't have to deal with budget later on. We get it all out on the table and we say, this is the way we're going to approach this. This is what we think it'll cost. Those things always kind of shift and change, but you know, I think it's a smart way to work. You know, it's like we've all been on those films where you go into it and they're still wrestling with what the cost is. And you find that you have this, mm. this kind of two-sided battle going on during production where you're, you're trying to design or you're trying to write or you're trying to lay out as a director what the film's going to be. And at the same time, you're having to deal with what's it going to cost and how do we cut or how do we add or how do we get more money? And there's this sort of, you know, you have a divided self kind of a divided spirit a bit. And it's nice to just have one focus. Here we go. You know? Yes. I mean, I think that discovery process is amazing and, and, and a huge kind of luxury that hopefully, you know, you guys have earned <laughs> obviously by, you know, the, what the work that's preceded you. But I find that that kind of period is that, you know, where you're not getting that kind of push pull with production and everything and you're just letting it breathe and you're just letting it be what it should be right. is like right. so important right. but i think sometimes as filmmakers especially on you know a lower budget end kind of want to rush into all the decisions to straight away but as a director obviously it's quite interesting that yeah. research period from my perspective is like you need to be able to listen to yourself first right right um before all the questions start on day one you know? <laughs> right, right. Yeah. yeah. I think that's a beautiful way of putting it, of yeah. being able to listen to yourself. Well, let's talk about the, the art direction side of, of mm -hmm. Mank then, because obviously this is going back to the golden age of Hollywood in your 30s and 40s, and yet you're shooting in black and white. So your look, 
will change right i mean from mm-hmm. let's mm-hmm. say the social network where at the time was very modern mm-hmm. uh, and the look was a very certain david fincher look that he loves and i hear you're shooting black and white so you've got to enhance things how did you think about creating that and how did you encapsulate hollywood which i think you did incredibly well mm-hmm. how do you how do you even go about starting you know gathering information and, and bits and pieces well, I think, you know, you always lean on, at least for me, and, and I'm sure you know this as directors, you always lean on the narrative. You always go back to the script. And, you know, that's always the key. And David's projects are always so well scripted. He doesn't start something until that's all in order. And the thing about Mank that's interesting is that <clears throat> when you read it, you think, oh, how are we going to accomplish this? L.A. in the 20, in the 30s mm-hmm. and the 40s. And because it changes so much here. It changes, you know, almost weekly. And, and they're not very good at preserving antiquity here. So although they are being more realistic about the preservation of things, it's just that they build everything mm-hmm. around it. So you might have a period building, but then you have, you know, a McDonald's and a Starbucks and yes. what have you <laughs> yes. right, up, right up against it, you know, which is sort of the, I, I guess the whole world falls victim to that. But, you know, when I started breaking down the script and just really, sort of realizing that actually it's quite simple. We, um, you know, my approach to things is always keep it simple and build complexity within it. And I think there was a way to tell the story of Los Angeles in that period without having to show Los Angeles, you know what I mean? The broad, you know, there was a way to keep it simple and keep things contained and yet give it scope. And I think that's what's, you know, somebody in set dressing union was in touch with me and they said, you know, I worked on it. And when I saw the film, I couldn't believe how big Mm -hmm. it felt, Mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think you just need to, you know, make choices and be selective and, you know, use discretion on where you go large and where you don't and, you know, realize the limitations, you know, for instance, shooting outside of the Glendale train station, you know, we didn't want to see too much to the right side because it was an industrial area, you know, and we did some matte painting back there to help it, but we really just tried to key in on this structure, this, um, Spanish revival structure that had maintained its integrity from the day and let that be the song. And, you know, it, it really works when you approach it like that. So the studio is the same thing. The studios have changed so much and the work we did in there, it was really just about, you know, finding selective avenues and passageways and then cobbling it all together. So it made you feel like you were in this massive studio that was all period. Mm-hmm. And really it, wasn't it at all, you know? So, you know, in terms of the black and white, I, you know, it was more an issue of trying to think in terms of value instead of chroma. And, you know, David early on did something I thought that was very genius. He sort of standardized it for everybody. He had us um, photograph, for instance, set dressing or props or what have you, take photographs in the noir filter of the phone oh. so that everybody was... <laughs> Yeah, that simple. So that everybody was doing it with this standardized, you know, resolution. And yeah, it was it was one of the quiet genius things that I think really 
I, I always talk about this. It kind of turned the corner on the film for us because we were doing all this testing with colors, what was better in black and white. And we were finding that, you know, certain colors like certain greens, certain pinks really photographed richly. Mm. But at the same time, we had to, we had to paint sets. So they felt real. We had to paint the interior of San Simeon and Hearst Castle. So it felt like real, you know, like it felt like a real sort of castle tomb. Um, the same with the bungalow where he lived. You, you can't paint sets vivid colors and have actors come in and <laughs> expect them not to start laughing or something. Yeah. You, know, over, yeah. you know, this carnival thing. Um, so that was kind of more the challenge on it. Um, I think, but I think your comparison to social network, I mean, if you look at the framing, if you look at the use of, of lines, if you look at the use of how it's all sculpted, I think there's a lot of similarities, actually. I mean, one's modern day. And when you were speaking, I was thinking just specifically about the um, sort of the dormitory rooms that um, we had built for Zuckerberg and so forth and the shapes that came out of those and how that sort of related to kind of the writer's rooms of Mank and the shapes that came yeah. out of those and the similarities in terms of, you know, composition of you know sort of the the donald judd application of form to space you know mm. um i i think there there are a lot more parallels there than you know i think the the obvious low-hanging fruit is the difference between the contemporary and the color versus the period in the black and white but when you just sort of minimize everything and uh, there's a lot of similarities between shape and form and so forth, I think. Yeah, because, you know, we, we talk about black and white, but it's more like it's gray, isn't it? It's kind of it's the definition between black and white um, that is the palette. And one of the things I love about, you know, uh, uh, David's work is that his his color palettes um, are brave and distinctive, but also emotional. Mm -hmm. Um and it's the same whether he's, you're dealing with different tones of gray or different tones of green and yellow or those kinds of tones of social network. Everything's very considered. Mm -hmm. Yes. You know, so uh, I can definitely see what yeah. you're saying there. In it's terms very, of the, yeah, the it's very thought out. Um, it's funny that you spent, you know, so it's funny like you were, uh, you probably spend all this money on all this color, and and uh, you, there's some, probably some accountants somewhere going, "Why is he buying this much color? It's a black and white film." <laughs> Can we talk about longevity? Because obviously you've worked with David for quite a lot of films, and a same crew for a lot of films. Because it's really important for our filmmakers and ourselves to understand creating those mm -hmm. relationships is really important. And how you do create a great relationship with a director from a production designer's point of view and vice versa. What's the strategy, mm -hmm. if there is one? What's the strength to having longevity in filmmaking mm -hmm. with, with a group of people? And also, what's the best way to work within that group with mm -hmm. said director? I think... Um... I think relationships, you know, as a production designer, I think you always approach your director, for instance, if I was working with you, I, it, again, the listening is very important and the trying to understand the story that the interpretation of the narrative that you want to tell and the way you want to tell it. And I think it's important to, to listen and understand and, and try to put yourself in their position and, and say, okay, this is where they want to be, and this is what they want to achieve. And 
I'm here to facilitate it and to bring something to it as well. So I think often, you know, it's, you can read scripts and I think you both know this probably, you can read scripts where you, you read it and um, you say, wow, that's a great opportunity for art direction, but you're not necessarily connected mm -hmm. to what the script is. And you, you know, you'll meet with a director and you're not necessarily sure why the director's doing it, to be honest with you, you know? Um, so I, you know, for me personally, you know, I come from art school and it's very important that, you know, there be substance and reason and purpose behind, you know, the project. And, you know, obviously with David, there is, and I think David and I, you know, it's that thing where I think in life, you, if you're fortunate enough to find that other collaborator that, has sensitivities toward things that you do on some level. And, you know, I'm not in any way, shape or form trying to put myself on the genius of David on that level, but, you know, we do approach certain things in this, with the, in the same manner, with the same aesthetic and with the same attitude. And I think that's important. And once you find it, I think you really have to, to latch on to it and just let it be natural and not try to force it and not try to not try to appease directors so much on what they want and, you know serve them but realize when you walk away okay on that particular project i was helping that director but i didn't really quite see eye to eye with him on this and the next time maybe it'll be this way or that way or whatever and i don't know i think there's there's just sort of a you know there's an unspoken sort of rhythm that he and I have that has developed over time. And, you know, we have a shorthand on certain things and um, we have an understanding and truly a, a lot of our conversations about sets and design. I mean, literally it'll be, you know, I need David for 15 minutes to go through six sets and we can go through them and mark it real quick. And, you know, it, there's no feeling like I have to labor over it for 12 hours with him, you know? Um, and there's back and forth. There are things that, you know, I make mistakes. There are things where it's like, no, 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 I don't want to do that. I want to, you know, a lot of it has to do with camera moves. A lot of it has to do with, um, most of it has to do with camera moves or screen direction, left to right, right to left or whatever. Um, so I don't know. I think, I don't know how to say when you, when you find directors that you, you enjoy working with or that you feel a connection to, it, it's kind of, you know, just something inherently in your soul where you go, okay, this is working out, you know, and you don't even hear that because it's working out so much that you don't even have to tell yourself that you don't have to be reminded. It just kind of comes naturally. And I think that's an important place to try to get in terms of, you know, the relationships with other crew. I think you just, you always find people for me, it's a mix of people that are a, hardworking and talented, but also very kind within my department. I don't like people that come in and, you know, demand this or stir that up or whatever, no matter how talented they are. And, you know, I've had some in the past that do that and they're really gifted beyond anything I could ever imagine for myself. And I just can't bring them back in because it's like, it's not, there's something that's just not worth it. You know, there has to be an air of, you know, collectiveness within the department to make it work you know beautiful don burt thank you so much for your time you are a legend appreciate it a lot thank you so much thank you
Take care. All the best for Thank the Thank you. Night. Good luck to you guys, okay? You too. Good luck. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Well, as they say in the Bronx, make yourself to home, Mr. Mankiewicz, or shall I call you Herman? No, please, call me Mac. Well, I don't know about you, Phil, but that was a delight. I could talk to him all day. What a lovely, yeah. lovely man. Just so yep. unassuming and just worked in all these amazing movies and uh, just, just great. So inspiring as well. I think that's, even though these are like Oscar nominated in the past and Oscar nominated now for Mank, obviously, but I still think it relates to what we're doing now. There's not that much difference between a massive movie, a big Netflix movie, a studio movie, than indie films. It, it, I mean, there is. There's a lot of money. But at the same time, you've still got to do the same job. Mm-hmm. You've still got to deliver. Now, that's what I found really interesting. Interesting. Our, our next guest, not to be segue man, but actually touches on oh, a few great segue. <laughs> uh, kind of really quite lo-fi ideas about her department that she touched on, which she thought were quite interesting. So listen out for that. And that's a brilliant segue into our next guest, and it is the fantastic Trish Somerville. She is the costume designer for Mank. She's a delight as well. But um, some of her other films, some of her other credits include The Hunger Games, Catching Fire. Um, Red Sparrow, The Dark Tower, um, Justin Timberlake featuring Jay-Z, suit and tie. And then obviously she's worked with Fincher Lowe, The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, Gone Girl and of course Mank. I actually asked um, some brilliant costume designers I know, uh, Juliet Scrimeri and Robin Manton, uh, if they had any questions. So some of these questions are from them. What, did, what, did, what will our listeners take away do you think? What, what what can we tease them with, do you think, Phil? Just actually the advice she had uh, for kind of up-and-coming uh, costume designers uh, and uh, some really good, solid advice about fabrics. The history of fabrics. We could have gone into that, especially with this movie. Uh, but she also talked about where she buys her costumes and what it's like working with actors within that costume realm. It's a delight. Let's not waste any more time because this is a very special episode. Let's get to our episode with the fantastic Trish Somerville. Hi, Trish. Hi. Hi. Absolutely lovely to meet you. Oh, thank you. Thank you. First things first, incredible job with Mank. Um, Just an absolute delight to look at, uh, an absolute beauty of a picture. And it must have been really interesting, you know, to dive straight into doing a costume for a period movie, 30s and 40s. And actually going, okay, do I have to get it really close to the period? But we're shooting in black and white, so I need to enhance the colours. What was your first thought um, when Mr. Fincher came to you and said, look, uh, uh, we're making this on Netflix. It's going to be black and white. (laughs) How are we going to do this? What was your your initial reaction to that? Was very excited. Um, I think I'm always excited when I get a chance to work with Dave. And this one kind of added all the things to it. It's, you know, it's, it's Dave, it's a great script, it's a great cast, it's mm-hmm. period, and then it's black and white. So it's all those things that you don't ever think will line up for you as a filmmaker. <laughs> you, you yes. hope you get, you know, my, I always, I'd be like, if I could get three of the things to line up would be great. But in this one, you know, it was just everything you could want to do in a project. So I was really excited about it. Gosh, yeah, I'm not surprised. It must be that wonderful feeling, like you say, to get all three in one go. Mm. Because for you, it must be super exciting, the period. You know, what is it that you like best when, you, when you're, when you you know, 
are thinking about costumes or thinking about doing a film what is it that attracts you is it necessarily the sort of going well okay period that's super exciting rather than modern day or is it you know thinking superhero what what is it that excites you in terms of doing costumes it's usually i mean i probably shouldn't say this but it's definitely always the script you know i Mm. i'm drawn more towards scripts and, and subject and director than i am towards are there costumes in it for me to excel at you know i think it's Mm. um i first read the script and see if i if i want to be a part of helping tell this story and then in that you hope okay i hope there's some great costume opportunities in here and some things that are really fun and really challenging so with dave and with mank again it's getting all of that you know it's it's reading the script which is a really solid solid script i mean the dialogue is amazing Mm. you can see it all in your head as you're reading it it does transport you and you have that, and then you have the big bonus of, you know, the actors that are attached to it, and then this black and white concept, which is not something I've done in entirety. I've shot videos and some flashback sequences in black and white, but it's the first feature um, or long story that I've told in black and white. So that was a that one really, you know, triggered my interest and really um, presented a new challenge to me of something I hadn't done yet. Could you go into those challenges? Because obviously, if you're doing just a flashback, then the, or a video, the short duration. But you know, you, a lot of the costume, and also a lot of the kind of the production value of this film comes from the costumes. Like it's very much you know, in every frame. So thank you. you. <laughs> well, it does. I mean, you know, if you can't have. I mean, there are some big sequences, obviously, but if you can't have huge sets and huge, you know, all that kind of side of things, the costume is at the forefront of everything. And if the costume isn't kind of hitting the mark, it makes everything Mm -hmm. feel a little bit fancy dress (laughs) (laughs) in in places. So could you talk about maybe the challenges or the pressure of of using the black and white kind of palette? And and did you have to rethink how you approach things? Could you go into that process a little bit? Definitely. I, I think, you know, it was switching my brain um, and how figuring, w- figuring out how we were going to shoot it. And early on, I started um, using the three settings, the three black and white settings in my in my phone and started um, at rental houses looking for silhouettes, looking for patterns, looking mm-hmm. for fabrics so that I could you know figure out what was authentic of the time and and not and then going through you know tons of catalogs of the time finding patterns of of that of that period and with my phone I would photograph everything in these three settings I did this for about 2 days I collected a bunch of information and sent it to Dave and to Eric Messerschmidt and asked them of these three settings, which one would you lean towards? You know, I know it's not going to be the Fincher vision of ultimately what it's going to look like on screen, but giving me a kind of an idea of where I could go of these three settings, because they're, they're vastly different. Where are we leaning? And they, and Dave said the noir setting. And so I went with that from there on out and we kind of shared that with everybody. If that's what you use. And he called, you know, all the department heads and said, shoot everything in this. And, mm. and so from there, it was just genuinely using that setting for everything, like even putting buttons on fabrics, laying it down to see which button we would use. And so it was really a very useful tool before we got to do camera test Um, because camera tests, you know, by the time you're doing that, you're already building clothes. So I needed to know, you know, what fabrics am I buying? You know, where am I leaning? And then it really helped me to figure out what colors worked well so that I could tell what fabrics I wanted to use and how things draped and what, what textures and details we would see and what things would fade away. 
So I just did a lot of research in that of just photographing tons of stuff with my assistant, Corey. And we kind of made, you know, our, in our mind of where we would go. And the other thing was seeing the colors that translate beautifully in black and white, but to have to physically see that with your naked eye on set and knowing Dave and how he feels about color and trying to keep the actors in their mind of where it was. I can't put Amanda in an orange dress and Mm -hmm. Lily in, you know, a bright yellow shirt, even though those colors translate well in black and white. It was working with Don Burt, who's the production designer, and asking him, what do what do your sets look like here? What colors are you using for this? So then I can mimic that so we have this nice tone and palette from white, all the shades of gray in between till we get to black, so that it didn't look like a big bowl of candy in a room, so that we had tonally things that were aesthetically pleasing. You know, I, I made a couple of jokes earlier with Dave. I was like, only look at the monitor. Do not <laughs> yes. look at the set. Yes, it's yes. true. He almost needs to wear yeah. black and white glasses so that yeah. when he's looking around, he can see it that just, way, right? Just two iPhones as like <laughs> yeah, a VR view. <laughs> yeah, just look at it this way. So then I knew like that's never going to work. So then we did just contain the palette and we didn't do any bright, shocking colors of anything. And we just tried to keep it in certain jewel tones to then muted tones of those colors and pastels. So that worked out well. But now I do know why, you know, Edith had wore those glasses all the time. It was so she could see stuff as black and white. So clever. You know, mm-hmm, yeah. really you, clever. You talk there about, you know, uh, first of all, I love how you call him Dave. You're the first person <laughs> to call him Dave. Dave. Can we Dave call him ever? Dave now? No. Yeah, can we no, all call Mr. him Mr. Fincher? <laughs> We're still Mr. Fincher. Mr. Fincher. Mr. Fincher. I'm going to start calling him Mr. Fincher. Fincher, exactly, exactly. <laughs> but you talk there about working in teams. And obviously, mm. you've worked with a lot of this, you know, wonderful crew before. You know, Don yeah. Burt, uh, Gigi Williams, obviously Fincher, mm. and so many more of the crew. What does that feel like mm. to keep coming back to the same... You know, team. Well, I was on. I was on for probably. I mean, uh, really, like logged in on. I was on for probably about ten or eleven weeks. And Don, uh, the production designer, was on quite a bit longer than than that for me. And then we shot. I'm gonna say seventy days, sixty-five to seventy days, somewhere in there. Um, and I have to say, what I really love about. I mean, what I love about working with Mister Fincher is, you know, he's very. Um, He's very precise, but we have so much freedom. And I know that kind of seems like that doesn't make sense or it's just weird juxtaposition, but it is really true. And and I think it's that's the same feeling I get with Don Burt. Like, you know, I love going into his office um, and I can just look at all his research when I first start. So I can see where are you at because you're so far ahead of me in the project. And, and, and my characters all have to fit inside of his world and his mm-hmm. world has to fit inside of Dave's world. So we have to have a lot of dialogue. And, you know, I've struggled in the past on another project where I had a really horrible time with the production designer mm. and realizing because he didn't know what he was doing. So he couldn't share any information with anyone else. And and that makes you having it one bad experience makes you appreciate your great experiences even more. Even though when I'm in it, I know this is a great experience. But when you come back to working on a show with Dave, you're just you really understand of like, there is a shorthand between everybody and there's a generosity with information. You know, if Dave's talking to me and I've had situations where he's talking to me about something and then he says, oh yeah, but so that'll probably be green or, you know, he'll say something about like, you know, something that's not my department. I immediately <laughs> contain it and then go to the AD or to Don and go, hey, he threw this out there. I don't know if it's going to stick or not, but I got to tell someone because it's not my department, you know, <laughs> and, sure, and I sure. get the same thing if Don's on a scout and he's like, oh, we're going to have 40 background there and 25 over here. He'll call me and tell me that. And I think that's so helpful 
because we do rely on each other. And I, that's the part of, you know, filmmaking that I love is, is you are a tribe and it's like, you just have to, everybody picks up each other's slack or encourages each other when you can, and you compliment each other with, you know, all our work together. And, and that's what you really kind of get with him. And, and, and I call us repeat offenders, you know, or, um, <laughs> or long-term peeps, you know, it's the ride or die crew. It's, it's just having that kind of, yeah, it's definitely that shorthand and that, and that trust as well. It's a lot of trust and respect you have to have. Because we were talking to Gigi and she said that um, she's, all her work is very much inspired by your work. So mm. um, is there a pressure there of like she's starting to go and you're, you're having to finish your side of it? No, because it's, it is the thing of like, you know, how, and the way that Dawn starts quite a bit early, I, I get to start much earlier than hair and makeup because just we're building clothing and our prep is so much longer and all our fittings. So it's the same. As soon as I know something, I share it with the hair and makeup team and, and we, and, you know, I invite them every time we have a fitting, it's come in, you know, probably the last 20 minutes of the fitting. So you can kind of see where we're at. You can have a conversation with the actor you know, it's that kind of a thing. And and I do boards well before oh, of okay. ideas and stuff of mm -hmm. like, you know, what I think the hair should look like, what the makeup should look like. And it's always open for discussion. But it is there is the thing of, you know, how I'm saying like my characters have to fit into what Dawn's world looks like. And we're talking about like status, um, income level, you know, where regionally where they are, all this plays into like what someone's environment is, is then to how they're going to dress. And in the same sense of how they're going to dress is usually physically of how their head is going to look and how much time they spend on their makeup or their hair and what the men look like if they're really buttoned up or if they're disheveled. So it is, you know, it is this exploration into the whole world of what each character and their dwelling is like. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I mean, I have to kind of get things together and then, you know, go over them with the hair and makeup team to show them here's what I think, but what do you think will then work on this actor? Cause then that's another thing you fall into is, mm -hmm. you know, we were based particularly for Mank, a lot of real people. These were people that existed that there's photographic evidence of. And so we wanted to make certain things, you know, reproduce, recreate things that you could identify like the circus party is something that I wanted to recreate that circus party and be close to as many of those costumes as I could Whereas for the rest of the, the film, there's nothing particularly that had to mimic a photograph I saw. So you want to pull from the imagery of what that character is, that real life character. But you also have to figure out how you're making that look work and that feel of that character work on this real actor's body. Mm -hmm. And what and what will help that actor transform into that character. And it may not be a literal photograph that you have it may not work on them proportionately it may just not work so it's the same with Gigi when we start talking about like I can show her these are the suitings I'm going to use this is how many day looks we have and so then she can start figuring out like what her makeup is like and how much time I, the person would really spend on their makeup and how done they are and the same with hair you know how is it someone that gets their hair set every week or is it someone who does their own hair at home well, talking of that, it's a perfect segue, thank you very much, into uh, the actors and obviously what they bring to it. So how do you collaborate with someone like Gary Oldman, who's probably got strong vision on how he wants it to look as well, obviously with uh, Mr. David Fincher as well and going through mm -hmm. sort of that department. But how do you sort of, you know, um, create those costumes that they can embody the character and they feel comfortable in and obviously still get your v vision across and, and Mr. Fincher's as well? How do you work that? Because that can sometimes be a tricky, tricky balance. 
It definitely can. I mean, someone like Gary, um, you know, is very committed. He does his own research. He knew a lot about Mank. Um, he was really tied to the script. I mean, he has said in interviews as well, it's he, you know, he didn't have to read numerous books of Mank because what was on the page to him was very clear and, and spoke loudly to him. And I think that's, you know, what we're all striving for is to be true to what's written on the page. But with Gary, you know, as we started doing, and we had numerous fittings with him, um, because generally, you know, a man's suit takes a, a solidly, I, I like to have three to five fittings on a suit that we're making just to get it, because I'm really very uh, particular about tailoring and fit. And and of that period, that would be the thing that mattered a lot is you, no matter what your income level was, you were always trying to be put together fairly nicely and presentable. Mm. So with Gary, we really wanted to show levels of his clothes are very lived in. They're not as pressed and pristine, but he's never dirty. He's always kept nice, but he is definitely lived in, you know, he's sweating out alcohol. Mm. And so he was really open to all these ideas. And he even asked like, in his bed clothes when he's convalescing, could he have some cigarette burns? Cause he smokes, you know, he smokes mm. in bed. So he's great with that. Great about like, you know, I would give him period shoes and he would take them home to wear them in and walk around in them. And, you know, he put on like 15, like 12 to 15 pounds, which was fantastic for us because you get that weight here. You know, mm, even when I make jolly. a padded suit, mm. yeah, I can't, I can't do anything neck up in a padded suit. And, and, you know, and Dave didn't really want him to wear prosthetics, which I think was such a brilliant plan because yeah. you see every expression of Gary, you know. And so I think that was another reason he was fantastic about putting the weight on. But we would do things about making his shirt collars too small so that he could pull up all this flesh and try and have more of a double chin. You know, it's where we would have him wear his pants, making his shirts a little bit too tight. So everything looked like he was you know, growing out of it as he, as he aged, as the progression of the film went on. So he was very open to all those things. And one of my, one of my two favorite things that he, um, he once stole my heart was um, there's a, the beach scene mm -hmm. and, you know, he's got this belly. And so, you know, we had two styles of the wool um, swimsuits and one, you know, kind of it's the suspendery part that comes up that kind of looks like a wrestling, a wrestling uniform. Yeah. And we had that one. And then the one that's just the trunks. And then he just leaned back, hit the trunks on. He said, oh, this one, we have to show all of this. We have all of this. And I just thought, like, how brilliant of you, because it was no level of vanity at all. Mm -hmm. And the other one was this um, it was the summer uh short union suit to sleep in and he wears that when he's convalescing and it was one of my favorite costumes on him it was just this really we made it out of just very very thin cotton broadcloth and had a little bit of detailing in it and, and he just was fantastic about wearing this you know this little white cotton union suit so you know he is he's really up for um the authenticity of what his character is you mentioned sort of like tone and texture there and uh, you know we mm. talk about black and white but you know it's all it's about the grays you know that's kind of what yes. it is so well, in terms of costume obviously you, you know you've got a lot of suits for example you know mm. um and but everyone looks unique and different and feels different and you don't have color mm. to do that so uh, i you know i was studying a few like stills and thinking oh yeah yeah the texture of that one is slightly different to that one and uh, it's stuff you don't notice watching the film but i just thought it'd be interesting mm. to hear you talk about that approach to you know a, a suit basically but it's so full of them well for the men and thank you for noticing that that does mean a lot um 
you know, we there's things that we do as costume designers and, and you hope that you have to do it for your own sensibility and for the script. And then you hope, oh, I hope that someone notices that or it is <laughs> it is taken into context. But so with the men's suits, because we do have so many men in scenes together because of the because of the era and it being writers rooms and, you know, on studio lots. So um, uh, Corey, who worked with me, um, we we literally made charts of every fabric swatch for the suitings, the linings of the suitings the shirts and then what the ties would be and kind of laid them out and every scene where there was, you know, more like the three men to the five men to the seven men together in scenes, we would put them out so we could see what each person was wearing because I did want it to look, you know, I wanted them all to have some individuality to them. And so things that helped us was like Thalberg is a much younger mm-hmm. character. He was very fashionable. He was married to a film star. She so traveled the world. So he's, right on the cusp of fashion with the silhouettes of his suit or, or the big full pants. And he's very prim and proper and pristine and has flashier ties. Then you go to someone like a Hearst character who's a much older gentleman. And even though he has a lot of money, he's very dated and conservative in his views and in his appearance. So we kept him in um, like very late 1920 silhouettes, very narrow trousers, longer jackets, kind of a softer shoulder to show his age and, the, you know, and curving him out because Charles is quite statuesque. Mm-hmm. So we had to like soften him a bit, but it was finding difference in, um, you know, whether it was the tone, like a brown suit, a navy suit, a grays, some greens, and then looking at difference in prints and plaids, whether it was like glim plaids and houndstooth and herringbones. And it was just trying to make sure we had a variance there. And I really didn't use black. Um, we use very, very, very little black in the film. We might have some black, you know, maybe 5% at the funeral. Um, but none of our principals are really in black. Like the wives are in navies and aubergine and mm. Bordeaux kind of tones and emeralds that translate as black. Um, black kind of just goes to dead it absorbs too much light um, and it just goes really flat and then we use very little whites true whites the only person I want to constantly use whites on was uh, Marion because I wanted her to kind of be this bright light that you always were drawn to and my big thing was when Mank entered a room or something he could always find her immediately it was kind of like his you know Mm. his little accomplice so so for most of the whites, we really did tech things down or I would use for most of them in shirts or either a very, very, very light. We call it a, a, a tech one, but like an accru, very pale, pale accru, and then a very, very pale, uh, like icy dove gray. So we didn't have these bright white collars. And then I know, which I was I found fascinating that Dave knew all this information about makeup and was talking with Gigi about it of like, you know, tanning the skin a bit so that the whites of the eyes really pop and the whites mm-hmm. of the teeth pop instead of it looking like all tonal. So once she figured out where she was going there, that helped us with knowing, you know, the color of the colors, especially for the men being so close to their face and their necks of what, what tinge of a color did we have to go there? Mm. You know, so it's all these things that kind of play into each other that you don't really think about till you start. No, it's fascinating. It stops them being like these floating heads on like white mm-hmm. prints, you know? Yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah um, definitely. Yeah. Do you know something else I loved as well is the um, the emotion that I felt through the costumes. Mm. And it's really difficult to do that. It's really difficult to when someone's in a 
downbeat place or an upbeat place is getting emotion through costume yeah. is there any tips <laughs> anything you look for when trying to do that because i think you did it magnificently in this film you know especially when a uh, mank was in a certain rage i felt his costume right. portrayed that as did the makeup as did the light everything seemed to go mm. okay i'm loving what's happening here and then when he was on his upward spiral when you know things actually happen for that particular script then oh okay he, he, i don't know something seemed to change did was that a conscious choice and how do you do that? <laughs> well, we did it. It's a lot in like I, I'm a big advocate on on um, you know I probably drive my crew crazy sometimes, but I'm a big advocate on uh, aging, uh, breakdown, aging, distressing, dying is very very important to me. Um, so you know the breakdown of items is when you wear the clothes in, and it, and and people often think of breakdown as like you know it's the homeless, the home free person, the street person, and it's not that. It's it's finding someone um, like that position to me in their department is very interesting because it is someone who has to know the subtlety and has to understand the awareness of the character. So I really talk extensively with you know with my team of. This is how I see this person. Here's imagery of this person. I'll, I'll pull up images of how I want the jacket to look, where it's soft, where mm -hmm. it's worn in, put it on, see where the elbows, like on, you know, when Gary puts it on, I'll mark where his elbows are. I'll have him ha put his hands in his pockets and see how he weights his pockets. And then it's like, you know, it's brushing in areas that, you know, are the used areas. So like for his clothes, he's in his pockets a lot because he's looking for a lighter, he's looking for matches, getting cigarettes. Oh, he's got receipts in his pockets. Like we would put crumpled up cigarettes in his pocket. We put matchbooks from the Trocadero in wow. there. So he just has this, you know, he has these things that he, that Mank would have in his real life. So it is trying to choose, even though this is a color, choosing a tone that helps fill the mood, um, not going too happy or too light, not having too festive of a tie, um, trying to choose that that helps show the emotion of the character and where they're at in a particular scene. But it is also to the, the the wear of the clothes and how they're broken down and what the softness, you know, when someone has a more soft kind of collar and there's a softness in the shirt and it's a little rumpled, there's a bit more like of a compassion that it kind of ensues in you or like mm -hmm. it's an expression of them that you can see that there's a vulnerability there. And I think that's really important Um from, you know, it's important for me and I think it's really important for the actors. And I, I'm somebody who I really love working with actors. I love actors. I love helping them get to that place that they need to be and giving them, even if it's only something that that person and I know that is in their pocket or is sewn inside a suit. Mm. You know, it's like if it helps them get to that place and it's their little trick and their little secret. I really like all those little things. I like all the the subtleties that that creates and, you know, and it helps and it helps project and and absorbs you into who that's supposed to be. Wow. Uh, Trish Somerville, not only was this a fantastic interview, um, but you deserve all the plaudits you get. Honestly, it's a stunning job you have done on Mank. Huge congratulations. Oh, thank you. Thank you. It was a definitely, a, um, you know, it was a very big collaborative effort. I think it's overall, everybody did such a beautiful job. So that's why it looks so lovely. Amazing. Thank you so much for your time. This has oh, been thank brilliant. You both. You yeah, take thank care. You, thank you, both. You guys best. were lovely. So nice. Thank you. Oh, bless you. <laughs> you. you too. Bye. Take care. Take care. Bye. Rita here runs on London time. Her husband is one of our bold lads in the RAF. Flies, what is it, Rita? Spitfires? Hurricanes. My sympathy and prayers. 
So there you have it, boys and girls. That was our Mank, the making of Mank, the making of David Fincher's Mank special. How much did you enjoy that? <laughs> you know, I really did. Like, it's really lovely to hear from heads of departments that just aren't the director and aren't the writer. No offense, because mm-hmm. we are them. Um, but yeah, but you taken. know, it's kind of it, it, it kind of gets into the nitty gritty of making things from a different perspective sooner you know because you're not talking about the themes or the vision or the style or that kind of stuff like this you're actually getting into how they built the sets or why they designed the costumes in that way or you know that kind of Mm -hmm. thing so it's always fascinating for me i always learn as a director like about these amazing professionals that make us all look good (laughs) you know i totally agree some of the some of the fabrics trish is talking about i've never even heard of in my life i know you know like the the amount of detail like she and this goes to all of them so it's amazing that these people you know are working with us as directors to kind of physically create the vision Mm. you know so i think i think danny boyle sums it up best as well by saying he likes to have all his team as mini directors so all his HODs will be mini directors. And I think Fincher does that too with his work. It seems that yeah. way. I mean, you know, he's a very intellectual director. So the people he has around him also have to be clever and insightful and think for themselves. And it really does seem that way. Obviously, David gets the last word on a lot of stuff, of course. But they come with their vision. What do you like, Mr. Fincher? This one, this one, or this one? Or in Trish's case, Dave, uh, which is just a delight. <laughs> Just call him Dave from now on. Yeah, I think we should when we meet him next. I say next. Like, uh, I meet him all the time. Um, (laughs) Well, there we have it, right? I mean, what a delight for you. I hope you've enjoyed this. If you have, tell all your friends. Pass this on. That is how we grow. Uh, You've been listening to the Filmmakers Podcast. Uh, I've been Giles Alderson. You can find me at Giles Alderson on Twitter. Phil, where can people find you? I am at Phil M Blog on Instagram, Twitter most of them yeah and do watch Phil's incredible short film Star Wars Origins if you haven't already and if you do write something nice on I, on, on YouTube go on you'll like that um, <laughs> thank you <laughs> um, remember you can go out there and make your indie film or your next next <laughs> or your Netflix film but remember who your audience is and if you're lucky enough to rise up and do well it is your duty Send the elevator. Send the elevator. Oh, messed it up, Giles. Oh, I did this whole podcast just to say that line. Okay, all right, I'll, I'll set you up. I'll Sorry. set you up. Um, and if you're lucky enough to rise up and do well, it is your duty to send the elevator back down. Bing! Amazing. Uh, thank you all so much for listening. Next week we have Jennifer Sheridan. This Tuesday coming up, the fantastic director of Rose, a love story. That's a delight to chat to her. Um, so we will see you then. Go out there, make your film, make it happen. Don't stop and go watch Mank. It's available now on Netflix. And wish them well with the Baftas and the Oscars. Not that they need it. There's going to be a few, I think. Indeed. Uh, Till next Tuesday when we will see you then. Take care. Bye. Any last words? <laughs> <laughs>